2006, October 5th. Today is Lecture 12, The Wanderers, Planetary Motions. Begin in just a moment. Okay. For the last two and a half weeks, we've been talking mainly about naked eye astronomy, the things that you can walk outside and look at and see for yourselves. Last night would have been a nice night to look at the moon if you were do except for the fact that I had to dodge golf ball size hailstones. But everything we've talked about so far, I've never had to make reference to a telescope or the use of a telescope or the use of a spacecraft or any kind of modern technology. All of these observations can be made by anybody just simply looking up at the sky. We've left out a lot of things and we now have sort of built up a great deal of complexity. We started with the simplest motions, stars and the sun and the moon rising in the east and setting in the west. And then we looked more carefully at the motions of the sun and the motions of the moon and saw that there was a lot more complexity going on. We could see that the sun was slowly sliding across the sky through the course of the year along the ecliptic, that the moon is on a tilted orbit with respect to the ecliptic and completes a circle around the sky once every 28 and a half days or so, giving us the basis of our month and the calendar, but also giving the cycle of the phases. Every now and then, the motions of the Earth, the Sun, and the Moon all line up and we get a beautiful eclipse, either eclipse of the Sun or an eclipse of the Moon. And we can use these time scales to get some idea of what the time of the day is, or even set longer time scales like the month or the year, or keep track of time up through the centuries. But I've been conspicuously avoiding mentioning one other set of naked eye objects in the sky, the very last ones, the planets, the so-called wanderers. And the reason for doing it is that their motions are the most difficult to under, complex and difficult to understand of all. And in fact, the attempts to explain the motions of the planets really marks the birth of modern science. So the key ideas for today's lecture on the wanderers is as follows. We're going to introduce for the first time the planets, the so-called wandering stars that follow very complex paths near the ecliptic. Not exactly in the ecliptic, but pretty close. <laughs> Now, to come up with a description of what's going on, remember we're talking about descriptive astronomy, I need to talk about where the planets appear to be in the sky given times. We're going to talk about planetary configurations, and we're going to see that the planets naturally divide themselves into two groups, the inferior planets and the superior planets, and we'll be defining these here in a moment. And then there are various configurations of which two of the more important ones are going to be conjunction and opposition and then a couple more, various elongations and quadratures. And we'll bring up that language here as we begin. Finally, we need to come down to what these things move like in the sky. Not just where they appear at any instant, but how they appear to move against the background of stars from night to night. And in the planets, we're going to come up against one of the most complex and mysterious motions to a naked eye observer, the so-called retrograde motion. When a planet, as it sort of continues along its generally eastward past, path across the sky, just like the sun and the moon, slows down, stops, and reverses course. What's going on there? Well, that's part of the story we're going to be building up to talk about next week. So let's review a bit. What is the naked eye sky? If you walked outside on a clear day or over a course of clear days, you would see a number of objects in the sky. The most obvious of these, of course, is the sun. It's the brightest object in the sky. It appears to the eye, or how should we say, to the properly shielded eye as a bright disk about half a degree across on the sky. It's about the width of your index finger held at arm's length. It's about a half a degree. The moon is the second brightest object in the sky most times. It appears as a pale disk also about a half a degree across in the sky. 
It's just a pure coincidence. It's why we can have total eclipses of the sun. And it seems to go through a monthly cycle of phases. We see it go through new, through waxing phases, crescent, first quarter, waxing gibbous, finally to full moon, and then through the cycle of waning gibbous, last quarter, and waning crescent. And it follows a fairly regular path again across the sky. This path is tilted by five degrees with respect to the ecliptic, but it stays within that five degrees from the ecliptic. If I draw the ecliptic across the sky, the path of the sun, it's easy enough to predict where the moon's going to be. Just make a bracket your fingers until you get plus or minus five degrees around the ecliptic. The moon's going to land somewhere in that band through the course of the year. And finally, we have the stars. The stars form the cosmic backdrop against which we observe all of these objects in motion. They appear to us, to the naked eye, as pinpoints of light that appear to be fixed to the inside of an immense sphere, just out of reach. So we really do get this illusion, which is, which is embedded deeply in the language of every people we know of, of the sky appearing as a hemispherical dome stretched above the Earth. If you've gone to the planetarium show, you can see how well, with an actual hemispherical dome set up as a with a projection system, you can actually build a remarkably good simulacrum of the nighttime sky. But they appear as points of light. And on human lifetime scales, to the ability to measure with the naked eye, they do not move. They form a pattern of what we would call the fixed stars, the fixed stars against the sky. We don't see their motions. They really do move in reality, but those motions are so small, they're imperceptible on a typical human time scale. I need precision instruments to see the motions or very, very long time scales. So these are the basic objects we see in the nighttime sky. But I've left out one set of objects, and those are the wanderers, the so-called planets. The name planet comes from the Greek word planetai. It means a wanderer. These stars, they look like stars, at least to the naked eye, stand out from the background of fixed stars because they seem to be moving with respect to those stars. They appear as bright points of light, just like the stars, but they move. They wander about the sky. But they don't wander just anywhere, and they don't wander at random. They do have a regular pattern of motions. The first clue to what's going on is that they stay within a few degrees of the ecliptic. Not exactly in the ecliptic. They're not perfectly lined up, but they stay pretty close, as if they all lie in some kind of same plane. The thing is, they also follow very complex paths. And each of the different planets has a different path to it and a different time scale associated with that path. For example, the planet Mercury was named because Mercury was the messenger god. He was the swiftest of the gods. He's usually portrayed as either wearing a helmet with wings upon it or maybe wearing sandals with little wings, as he had winged feet, which would send him swiftly across the sky. And indeed, that's exactly what the planet Mercury does in the sky. It moves through its courses of motion over roughly 88 days. Compare that to Saturn, which goes, takes approximately 30 years to repeat a path across the sky against the background of stars. Now, these objects all rise in the east and set in the west, just like all the stars, the moon, and the sun. But if you watch their motions against that background of stars, or for a couple of the planets, particularly Venus and Mercury, I watch their motions relative to the rising or setting sun, because they always stay pretty close to the sun, we'll find that they complete a circuit through the zodiac on very different time scales. And there's nothing about those time scales. There's no whole numbers that seem to make any real sense. There's a little bit of one with Venus. It was kind of picked up by the Maya. But other than that, not a whole lot is obviously going on. 
Now we recognize what we'll call the five classical planets. Now I have to be a little careful about the language here because we've been through this exercise this summer of defining what I mean physically by a planet in the 21st century. Here what I mean are the five planets that you can see with the naked eye. And by classical I mean derived from classical times when they were given their modern names. Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. There are two, at least two more gigantic planets within the solar system, Uranus and Neptune. They're not visible to the naked eye. They required the telescope to discover. And of course, there are a host of minor planets, or we now called properly dwarf planets. Those are completely invisible to the naked eye. They require the use of telescopes, and in fact, the use of photography to see easily, as we'll see later in the class. So when I talk about planets today, and when I talk about planets for the next week in the discussion of the rise of modern astronomy, I'm really referring to Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. You can see all of these in the nighttime sky over the course of a year. Here's a very nice picture. This is actually now taken with the Clementine Lunar Orbiter that went out and orbited the moon a number of years ago. Was looking at the moon, watched the sun disappear behind the moon, and caught a snapshot of three of the planets lying along the, the pl rough plane of the ecliptic. Saturn, Mars, and Mercury were caught, and of course the sun and the moon. If I take the five classical planets, plus the sun and the moon, those gave us the seven moving objects that were seen in the sky with the naked eye. The sun and the moon we've talked about extensively, but today we're talking about the five planets. And this is a nice picture. I like this because it does show very nicely the fact that these planets all seem to lie within a similar plane. Every now and then, it, you know, things just work out kind of just right. You actually can get a period of time where the bright planets are all, say, in the evening sky just after sunset. This happened about three, four years ago. It really was quite spectacular. I walked out on a clear night. It was a nice fall night. There was the sun setting in the, in the, in the west. Mercury and Venus were visible. And then Jupiter and Saturn were visible off in the eastern sky. And as I could take my hand and sweep it, from across the sky from where the sun had just set through Mercury and Venus and then down through Jupiter and Saturn, I could actually trace out, you could see the ecliptic plane. You could just see it was right there. All of them were lying along this line you could sweep out with your arm. It was one of the first few times I'd ever actually had the sensation of there's the ecliptic. You keep an eye out for that over the next few years. Things like that happen just every now and then in a clear night. It's really spectacular. Now, if we want to describe the motions of the, of the planets, we need to sort of, we will notice right away that planets naturally divide into two basic groups. And traditionally, these have been called the inferior and superior planets. The reasons for those names will, will become clear in a moment. It has nothing to do with physical size. It has nothing to do with better or worse than. The inferior and superior turns out to actually refer to motions relative to the sun and the earth. The inferior planets are Mercury and Venus. The reason why they were called inferior planets is unlike the other planets, they followed the sun fairly closely across the sky. In fact, Mercury never gets more than 28 degrees away from the sun as seen from the Earth, nor does, it get any further than, nor does Venus get any further than 47 degrees away from the sun. To give you an idea of what this means in terms of angle, if I'm watching the sun set off to the west here, okay, that's the south, to do it for direction here. 90 degrees is straight up. So if Venus never gets more than 47 degrees from the sun, that means Venus never gets further from the setting sun than about the position of the end of my hand here, being held at about 47, 45 degrees. Whereas Mercury 
never gets that far off the horizon, never gets more than about 28 degrees off the horizon, or about a third of the quarter circle from the horizon to the zenith. So that really stands out in terms of their behavior. If you want to see Venus or Mercury, you've got to look pretty close to the sun, either in the evening sky or if they appear in the morning sky, Mercury never gets about that far, about 30 degrees above the horizon, 28 in actual number. Venus never gets more than 47 degrees above the horizon. You would never see Mercury or Venus high overhead at midnight. You only see them at sunset and at sunrise and within a few degrees of the sun. That really stands out. It makes them look distinctive in terms of their position against the sky relative to the sun. And so they're given a special name, the inferior planets. The superior planets are the other three, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. These move along the ecliptic, but apparently independent of the position of the sun. I can see them rise with the sun. I can see them set with the sun. I can see them rise as the sun set. I can see them high in the sky at midnight. They don't seem to pay any mind to where the sun is at all when I see them in the sky, very much unlike the case of the inferior planets. So they were given the name the superior planets. Superior because they can actually appear sort of in the night, beyond, on the opposite side of the sky from the sun, whereas the inferior planets always appeared at dusk or dawn, at sunset or sunrise, and never appeared by themselves in the sky in the middle of the night. So we get the inferior planets, Venus and Mercury, and the superior planets, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And each of these are going to have distinctive configurations. Let's describe what these configurations are. The first thing we'll do is we're going to take a perspective. Now, the perspective I'm going to use for describing these is the heliocentric pers per, uh, perspective. I'm going to look at them from the point of view of a moving Earth orbiting around the Sun. And I'm going to approximate all the orbits of circles just because it's, it's easy enough to draw. The deviation between a circle and the actual thing, as we'll see next week, is pretty subtle with a few exceptions. Everything seems to rotate around with a, orbit around with a right-hand rule, and up for the right-hand rule is going to be out of the screen as I've drawn it. So if I put my thumb out of the screen, curl the hands of my right fingers of my right hand around, this is the sense of rotation of the er orbit of the Earth, the sense of the orbit of an inferior planet, and of course the Earth rotates this way as well. Now, I'm going to draw a line from the Earth through the Sun. Because remember, our perspective is going to be looking at the sky standing here on the Earth, and we're going to use the Sun's location as a reference point for where that planet is. Now, I can define two very simple configurations of the planet based on this line. The first of these is called inferior conjunction. That's when the inferior planet is between the Earth and the Sun, more or less along this line. It's not exactly on the line because the planes of the different orbits are slightly tilted. But to a first approximation, they project onto that line. So this is a case where this, the planet is between the Earth and the Sun, the inferior planet is between the Earth and the Sun. And I call that inferior conjunction. This is to be compared to superior conjunction. Superior conjunction is when the planet is on the other side of the Sun from the Earth. Now, both of them share a similar name, conjunction. Conjunction means that they are together on the sky. So I see the planet rise and set with the sun. The difference is, on one case, the planet appears to be close to me. On the other, the planet appears to be on the other side of the sun. Now, we don't sense depth when I look at Venus or Mercury, the two inferior planets. I can't tell easily whether it's in front of or behind the sun. 
by just looking at it. I have to watch its motions because obviously when Venus is in inferior conjunction, if we take this to be Venus, it's going to be moving this way in the sky. Whereas when it's at superior conjunction, it's moving in the opposite direction relative to the sun in the sky. So it's whether it's moving sort of, in this case, west towards east or east towards west gives us the, if I've probably drawn that right and I've drawn that wrong, if it's moving from east to west here, west to east over here. It's a little bit tricky to get that line, so I've got to be careful when I'm saying that. So the clue as to whether you're at inferior or superior conjunction has to do with the motions. Now, at either conjunction, the inferior planet rises and sets with the sun. It becomes a morning star or an evening star. It rises exactly with the setting and sun. Set, rising and setting of the sun is exactly and conjoined in the sky. Superior planets don't actually do this very easily. You don't get an inferior conjunction in a superior planet, as we're going to see. So the first basic configuration is where is the planet with respect to the sun? We say they're approximately along the same line. That is the condition known as conjunction. There's two other configurations that become important to us. It's going to turn out that this planet, inferior planet, is going to be at a maximum angle away from the sun. As I've drawn it here, it's pretty easy to see that that maximum angle is the tangent line of the Earth-planet line compared to its orbit. I can define two of these configurations depending on whether I am east or west of the sun as appearing in the sky. Maximum eastern elongation occurs when the planet is as far east of the sun as seen from the Earth that I ever see. In the case of Mercury, that's about 28 degrees, and Venus, it's about 47 degrees. Now, if the planet is east of the sun, that means since objects rise in the east and set in the west, the planet is going to rise and set after the sun. It's going to appear to be following the sun around the sky. Because remember, they rise in the east. So if the sun is over my horizon, just coming over my horizon in the morning in the east, and the planet is east of the sun, that means that planet is below my horizon at the moment of sunrise. And then as the sun gets higher in the sky, eventually the planet comes out from behind the limb of the Earth. Following it around, as the sun sets, the sun sets in the west. So everything above my horizon is east of the sun at sunset, and therefore I will see Mercury or Venus as evening stars, as we often refer to them. They're very bright in this configuration, they're easy to see. They actually are moving. You actually see them setting as, as the sun sets. And so we get an evening star. And that occurs the furthest the planet is ever seen away from the sun in the sky in the evening is a mass maximum eastern elongation. Well, I don't need to elaborate too much further on what the other configuration is going to be. We simply flip the diagram around. And note that when the planet is on the other side of the orbit, there's a maximum western elongation. This is the point at which the planet is now at its maximum west compared to the sun. And in that situation, because it is west of the sun, it rises and sets before the sun. So for example, if Venus is west of the sun, it's going to be in the configuration as it rises in the east, Venus will rise, and then a little bit later, I'll see the sun begin to rise. And so in that case, I will see Venus in the morning sky. During the daytime, it's really hard to see Venus. As it goes towards evening, Venus will set first, and then the sun will set. So I don't see Venus at all in the evening sky, because it sets before the sun sets. And so the same thing can be held true for Mercury. And we have Mercury and Venus will be the morning star 
when they are in the period area west of the sun, the highest they ever get in the morning sky is at the time of maximum western elongation. Since the orbits are essentially symmetric about this Earth-Sun line, then maximum eastern elongation of 28 and 47 degrees for Mercury and Venus, respectively, is repeated for maximum western elongation. Mercury never gets more than 28 degrees west of the Sun. Venus never gets more than 47 degrees west of the Sun. So those give us our basic configurations, the basic signposts on the sky of the motion of an inferior planet. I can either notice when it is exactly lined up with the sun between me or on the opposite side of the sky from the sun, where me is the Earth, or I can notice these two special locations when they're at their maximum position. Any of the other in-between positions are just that. They're just in-between positions and they don't have a special name. So I can use these to recognize signposts in a cycle. If I want to watch the cycle of the planets, I have to have configurations, positions in the sky that are very distinctive. And obviously the distinctive positions are inferior conjunction, superior conjunction, maximum eastern, and maximum western elongation. Those are the four distinctive positions of the inferior planets. We're going to, why I'm going into these in a little bit of detail is this one in particular, the maximum elongation, is going to figure importantly in the description of the system described by Copernicus in the, in the middle of the 15th century. So just some pictures here to sort of illustrate what's going on. This is a picture taken just after sunset. This is a, a, a lovely picture taken uh, by an amateur astronomer showing uh, the position of Mercury at sunset. This is where the person set up a camera and took a picture of the same location in the sky night after night when it was clear just after sunset showing the position of Mercury and on one of those nights of course it was the time of the waxing crescent moon because the moon of course appears in the evening sky so it's obviously in the process of moving away from the sun and we see over the course of that time that Mercury is further and further from the setting sun the sun is set just below the horizon here in this picture and you can see it following the sort of curved path and you can follow that curved path across the sky and you can notice there is a point of maximum elongation, the furthest Mercury ever gets above the western horizon. You could do a similar set of photographs for, for example, a morning when Mercury appears. This was done in the year 2004 between the months of March and April. And you get this beautiful picture now frozen as a photograph of the motions of Mercury across the sky, one of these beautiful inferior planets. The superior planets. Now again, I'm going to draw the same picture but now I'm going to give you a, a, a heliocentric definition of a superior planet. The inferior planets are the ones that are closer to the sun than the Earth, Venus and Mercury. The superior planets are those that are further from the sun than the Earth in the heliocentric picture. So now what I've got is the orbit of the Earth is drawn as the blue circle here, and there's the Earth and my Earth-Sun line, but now I've extended it outwards behind the Earth. If a superior planet is further from the sun than the Earth, that means it can get on the backside from this picture. It can get into the middle of the midnight sky. And so I can define a series of configurations that describe the positions of the superior planets. These have some special names. The first of these, in fact it's only seen in the superior planets, is the configuration known as opposition. Opposition is when the planet is on the opposite side of the sky relative to the sun as seen from the Earth. Remember, our perspective is we're standing on the Earth. In that case, this planet will rise just as the sun sets. 
just in the same way that the full moon rises as the moon sets. The moon is, in effect, at opposition at full moon. Also, it means that the planet will be as high as it ever gets in the sky at midnight. So if I see, walk out at 12 o'clock midnight, make proper adjustment for the difference in longitude with the zone time and my location, and I say that Saturn is at opposition, that immediately tells me, oh, if Saturn's at opposition, the best time to go looking for it is right at midnight because it will be the highest it is in the sky. Opposition is the best time to observe the superior planets because they're up all night. They rise in the east at sunset and they set in the west at sunrise. So I can watch them literally the entire night. So opposition is a really important time and it's the point of it being on exactly the opposite side of the sky from the sun. Remember, we're using as our signpost in the sky the sun against the stars. The other configuration, which has to do with this Earth-Sun line, is called conjunction. Notice there's no adjective. I don't use the word superior or inferior here anymore. A superior planet undergoes conjunction if it is on the same side of the sky as the sun. In a sense, we don't actually see this configuration because the planet will be lost in the glare of the sun. So I will know, okay, I've seen the planet getting closer and closer to the sun until it's lost in the glare. I don't see it for a few weeks, and then I start seeing it emerge from behind the sun. I simply split the time there and say, oh, in between that time must have been when it passed exactly behind the sun. It's like watching a car move along a road, stretch a road in the distance, and it passes behind a clump of trees. You see the car disappear into the trees and then reemerge on the other side. If you were timing with a stopwatch, you could probably guess pretty good when it's exactly lined up with you and, a, and the compass point in the middle of the clump of trees. Same is true of the planet. I can't actually see Saturn or Jupiter or Mars when they go into conjunction, but I can calculate where it should be by where it disappears behind the sun and where it reemerges. Because it's on the same side of the sky as the sun, planets in conjunction, superior conjunction, rise and set with the sun just like in the same way that inferior planets at both inferior and superior conjunction rise and set with the sun as well. So this defines the opposition and conjunction. Opposition only occurs in a superior planet. You cannot have an opposition with an inferior planet because the inferior planet can never get further from the sun than you are, by definition. It's an easy way to keep it straight. The other configuration is when we now have right angles. So I can take the Earth-Sun line as I drew before and now draw a second line at right angles, or up and down as shown here on the screen. And I can define two new configurations. The first of these is Eastern Quadrature, when the planet is at right angles, when the planet-Earth-Sun line forms a 90-degree angle, but the planet is now east of the Sun as seen from the Earth. This is going to be kind of like first quarter and last quarter moon. The, if in eastern quadrature, the planet will rise at noon and set at midnight. So if, for example, Jupiter was at eastern quadrature, it'll rise at about 12 o'clock during the daytime, but it's too bright to see it. But just as the sun sets, it'll be at 90 degrees. And so if I get out at exactly at sunset and I look south and look up and say, oh, look, there's Jupiter. Jupiter's right on my meridian at sunset, it must be in eastern quadrature. Why east? Because remember, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. So if Jupiter is on my meridian at sunset, east of the sun, it's at eastern quadrature. 
It's a very easy configuration to observe. All you have to do is watch for when the planet, Mars, Jupiter, or Saturn, the superior planet, is on your meridian exactly at sunset. Now, because Mercury and Venus never get further away than 47 degrees for Venus and 28 degrees for Mercury, they'll never be right on your meridian in the sky at sunset. So they can never be in quadrature. They can never form a right angle with the Earth and Sun. And that's simple geometry because they're on an orbit which is smaller than the Earth's orbit. The opposite configuration, you can guess what that's called, Western quadrature. Now the planet is 90 degrees west of the Sun. And just like last quarter moon, if it's in this position, the planet will rise at midnight and set at noon. So if I go outside and I don't see Jupiter, but then I notice as I wait along until midnight, suddenly Jupiter starts rising above the eastern horizon right at midnight, I know, aha, Jupiter is going to be at western quadrature because it's west of the sun now. And as Jupiter finally gets highest in the sky, it'll get right up on that meridian line just as the sun is rising. So if I was a lazy astronomer, didn't want to go out at midnight, I could find the time of quadrature by simply waiting till a few hours before dawn, getting up out of bed, and watching when v Jupiter is just crossing my meridian just as the sun rises. So if you're walking into school early in the morning on the way to your 9.30 class in winter when it'll be nice and dark outside at 7.30 or 8, and you look out and there's a planet right overhead, is say, like I live up in Clintonville, so I walk south along High Street. If I see Mars or Jupiter right there along High Street as the sun is rising, hey, I know Mars or Jupiter is now in western or very close to western quadrature. So again, these are very easy geometric configurations to observe, and they're very distinctive. You can measure their times very precisely. They form the fourfold signposts of the outer planet across the sky. Opposition, conjunction, eastern quadrature, and western quadrature. I can divide the sky into four zones when the planet is between these main positions, which means I can now make observations of when does a planet at opposition, when is the superior planet at conjunction, when is the superior planet at either the eastern or western quadrature, and I can watch those year after year and tabulate those. That's how I record the positions of planets to first approximation. And I sketch them out over the years. I can use those as a way of saying, oh, here you go. The planet was at opposition in this constellation, or it was in quadrature at this, in this constellation. Combining that information together over many, many years. In the case of Saturn, I've got to wait 30-odd years for that 30 to 40 years to build that data up. So it becomes multi-generational data. I will slowly but surely build up a set of data as to where the planets were precisely in the sky. And then the cool trick might be, what if I can predict where that planet's going to be at a certain time? Maybe there's a reason for my doing that. Then I'm going to have to have a fairly detailed record-keeping and arithmetic tradition in order to make and predict those kinds of measurements. And so you can see that in the tracking the motions of the planets, which are much more complex than the day-to-day -day cycles of the sun and the moon, is giving rise to requiring much more sophisticated numerical and astronomical techniques. Just that process was beginning to give birth to the methodologies behind scientific <laughs> astronomy. And if that was all that the planets did, that would be great, except there's a problem. The planets have a much more complex motion to them. 
In general, planets will rise in the east and set in the west. Everything in the sky in the solar system has a more or less eastward motion. The Earth orbits in an eastward direction. The Moon orbits in an eastward direction with respect to the, to the sky. And so standing on the Earth, I see the Sun rise in the east and set in the west, but over the course of many days, it slips slowly towards the east along the ecliptic. If you watch the Moon through the course of a week, it starts out at new Moon next to the Sun, and each successive phase, first waxing crescent, first quarter, waxing gibbous, full, is moving progressively eastward away from the sun as seen on the sky. And this general eastward motion prevails for everything in the sky except the planets. For the most part, they do seem to move east. They follow what's called direct motion. If I watch them go in the sky, they seem to be moving east. But there's a difference. And the big difference is that unit motion is very non-uniform. After watching the planets for a few years, you notice, you know, the planets move faster sometimes and slower at others. That's very different from the sun. The sun does speed up and slow down a little bit, and the Greeks and the Babylonians were able to see it. But it's subtle. The moon speeds up and slows down a little bit, but it's subtle. But in the planets, it's anything but subtle. In fact, it's right up in your face. So in your face that every now and then, the planets not only slow down, they slow down and they actually come to a stop. Huh? And then they start moving westward. They start moving retrograde. As if the planet was sitting there tooling along to the east and suddenly says, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. And starts moving to the west backwards. Says, no, no, I don't want to do that either. Stops and then continues moving eastward again. It really does do that. And it really stands out. The sun doesn't do that. The moon doesn't do that. The stars don't do it. But every single one of the planet, five observable planets do it. And they do it at very specific times. In fact, just to convince you that they really do do move that way, I've made a movie using a computer program that charts out the motions of the planets for the planet Mars. Mars is right here. It's seen against the sky as it was in September of 1994. That was one of these particular periods of Mars retrograde motion. I've sketched out the constellations of Gemini, Cancer, and Leo, which are all zodiacal constellations along the ecliptic. Now watch Mars there. It's right here. It's this little star right here move through the course of the months. This is September, October, November, slowing down, moving to the east, stopping. Now it moves backwards to the west and speeds up really fast and says, nah, we're going to slow down a little bit. And then by April of the following year, 1995, it says, yeah, okay, I'll keep going through the east again. Now as you watch this movie, I'm going to play it again. Notice that there's this blip that goes blowing through here from west to east. That's the moon. That's actually the moon going through its monthly phases. Except it moves so fast on the scale of this animation, it just appears as a moving blur. Moves backwards or retrograde, stops, and then continues moving eastwards again. Planets really do move like this, and every single one of the planets move like that across the sky. So here's that path now drawn out. We start in September of 1994 between the constellation of Gemini and Cancer, moving towards the east on this diagram. By January of 1995, Mars was in the constellation of Leo, but it stopped moving east-west. Between January and March of 1995, it moved quickly to the west, back towards the constellation of Cancer, finally coming to a stop 
in the constellation of Cancer here on the 24th of March. And then by the 4th of July, 1995, so I've traced out nearly a year of motion, it's back to tooling along from west to east, just as if nothing ever happened. And it forms, as I trace it out, I get this sort of green loop-de-loop -loop across the sky. That's so different than the moon, which just sort of goes up west to east, the sun west to east through the course of the year. But Mars stops, backs up, speeds to the west, stops, and then continues along its way to the east. This period where it's moving backwards is called retrograde motion. Here's a nice photograph of a retrograde motion occurring in August of 2003. It's a gorgeous picture by a Turkish amateur, Tung Tezel, taken night after night, in which he fixed his camera to point against the same stars and let Mars wander through the sky. In fact, there's another little blip up in here. That's actually, I think it's Neptune. It's Neptune or Uranus. I actually realize I've now forgotten. And it, too, is going through its little motion retrograde across the sky. What's going on here? So retrograde motion occurs in all the planets. Now, it's most spectacular in Mars and Jupiter and Saturn, but it also occurs in the inferior planets. And this is how you tell an inferior conjunction from a superior conjunction. Mercury and Venus do undergo retrograde motion, and they undergo retrograde motion at the time of inferior conjunction, at the time when this planet is in conjunction between the Earth and the Sun. When the planet is in superior conjunction on the opposite side of the sun from the Earth, it's moving in its direct motion way, moving towards the east. So this is how you can tell the difference between an inferior and superior conjunction for a minor planet, for, for an inferior planet. Is you ask, well, which way is it moving when it passes through the conjunction, when it passes into the glare of the sun? If it's moving from west to east in normal direct motion, that's a superior conjunction. However, if it's moving retrograde, moving from east to west, that's an inferior conjunction. That's why the ancient astronomers of the planet distinguished between an inferior and superior conjunction. They didn't see the depth. They didn't sense that, oh yes, Venus is closer to me now and further from me then. They couldn't see depth. It's too far away to sense depth with the eyes. But they did notice that it was moving different. And because it was moving backwards, they thought that was inferior motion to the superior direct motion. The superior planets undergo retrograde motion, but only at one given time. They only undergo retrograde motion at opposition. Both of these are important clues as to what is going on here. Okay, it's telling us something that the retrograde motion is a consequence of the planet being at a very specific configuration between the Earth and the Sun for Mercury and Venus, and exactly on the opposite side of the Sun from the Earth for Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn at opposition. Or looked at from the perspective of Mars, Jupiter, or Saturn when the Earth is between them and the Sun, which is exactly the same as saying that when Mars is in retrograde motion, when Mars is at opposition, the Earth, as viewed by a Martian, is at inferior conjunction, which is the same time that inferior planets go retrograde. Hmm. It's telling us something. It's telling us something very important. The patterns, however, of the paths are very complex. And this is the other piece of the puzzle. For the planets, for the sun and the moon, it's very simple arcs. The path of the sun is so simple, we inscribe it as a single great circle across the sky called the ecliptic. For the moon, 
we get a single tilted path across the sky, which is the path of the moon. It actually doesn't have a special name, but we can follow it across the sky by just watching the phases of the moon from night to night. They're simple, direct motions, but the planets are complex. Sometimes they're little loop-de-loops that close upon each other. Sometimes they form funny S-loops. Let's take a look at a couple of these. Here's Venus. This is Venus going in retrograde motion between April and August of the year 2004, and it follows a path more or less along like this. It's like a big open S in the sky. This is another photograph by this, this amateur astronomer in, in Turkey, uh, Tonk Tezel, has taken a lot of these pictures. It requires a huge amount of patience. These are marvelous pictures. I, I love these things. Now notice, at this particular time here, when Venus is exactly at inferior conjunction, Venus is actually between the, the Earth and the Sun and actually in front of the Sun. And if you remember the transit of Venus in 2004, that was this. This is going to happen again in 2012 and then not again for almost 120 years. It's because these planes aren't exactly aligned, but every now and then the planes do align. And so in fact, in this case, Venus actually crossed the face of the Sun in this picture. And when it did so, it was moving backwards. The way this picture is oriented, this is actually east to west. So it's north up, east to the left, the way he's oriented this picture. Direct motion towards the east, towards the east, but now the backwards picture towards the west. It's moving retrograde. But it's not retrograde exactly due east-west. It's kind of at this funny angle. Here's another example in the year 2000 of Venus retrograde motion. Now, relative to sunset, it's making this complex looping pattern across the sky. In fact, these complex looping patterns do in fact repeat on a relatively regular cycle of which eight years is one of the cycle times inside of it. The Maya actually traced out the motions of Venus in great detail to actually higher accuracy than the motions of Venus were known by Europeans at the same time, about the time the Spanish showed up and destroyed their civilization. The earliest astronomical text we actually possess is a Babylonian text tracing out the motions of Venus. Watching these objects was a long-time pursuit of, of ancient astronomers. Well, here's a picture. I want to show you a movie now. This is um, taken using a computer, which is using the real orbits of the real solar system. Here's the Earth, the Sun, Mercury, Venus, and Mars, shown with their little astronomical alchemical symbols on them. And I'm going to take the perspective that the Earth is fixed and unmoving. And I'm going to start by tracing out the motions of the planets as viewed from this God's eye view looking down upon the ecliptic. So the ecliptic plane is the plane of the screen. I'm going to start by simply tracing out the Sun and Mars. Simple eastward path until, whoa, what's Mars doing there? It forms a loop and then goes back. But the sun is boring. It just goes tooling around along a circle in the same direction. But Mars doesn't do that. When it reaches opposition, notice opposition, opposite side, whoop, goes into that loop. Now let's switch on the orbits of Mercury and Venus. And as they go through inferior conjunction, notice that they do a little loop-de-loop. -loop. This is not some fevered imagination here. This is what the thing actually looks like from the perspective of a moving Earth. The solar system, the planetary motions really do look like that. The difference here is now using a computer, I've added the dimension of depth, of distance. Well, you can imagine after a few centuries of tracing out the motions of the heavens, the Greeks and the Babylonians looked at each other and said, who ordered that? 
Here was an orderly heavens, the sun and the moon following simple paths, and the planets were moving in incredibly complex ways. They were unlike any other motion in the sky. Explaining these motions, simply describing the motions is straightforward, but they're extremely hard to describe. It took 3,000 years to finally actually come up with the right explanation for why they move that way. And the reason it took so long is they really are that complex. The motions are subtle, and they just simply defy poetic or, or metaphorical description. You can talk about the sun being on a chariot running around a racetrack. You can't do that for Mars. The complexity of the paths that was just seen in that movie simply defies simple geometric description. You can't write down a simple model for what's going on. It really is a hard problem, and the hard problem is the ones that challenge us and ask us if maybe we're asking the right questions or not. So how do you explain these motions? Well, it's really a question of approach. There's two basic approaches. One is you can take a phenomenological approach. You can find a way to compute the motions, predict correctly when Mars and Jupiter and Saturn are going to go into opposition and in retrograde motion, and not worry yourself about why they work that way. This is attempting to preserve appearances. You want to make predictions and not worry about the whys. Or you can come up with a physical description. What is the underlying reason for why they move that way? And then your predictions follow from first principles. So we can either take a phenomenological or a physical approach. Any theory of planetary motions has to have internal consistency. It must follow the same rules, and you can't simply change the rules to make it work. It also has to predict the power. It's got to work and give you improvements of measurements better than you would get before. This is hard. And doing this marks the birth of science and is the story that we will pick up on Monday. So we'll see you all at the test tomorrow.